Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, February 7th, we're studying Luke chapter 7, verses 18 to 35. John the Baptist sends messengers to Jesus with an important question, one that deserves an answer. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Joel Heckman. Pastor Heckman serves at St. John's Lutheran Church in Okarchie, Oklahoma. Pastor Heckman, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thank you for having me, Pastor Tim. So let's get started with some context. We're in the middle of chapter 7 today. What should we know about Luke, his gospel, and what he's been talking about that leads to this text? Well, there's been quite a bit leading up to this. If you go back through chapters 1 through 6 and even the beginning of um, chapter 7, that's what I really want to focus on. You could probably sum up a lot of the context prior to and even afterward as Jesus following his authoritative teaching with authoritative actions. And that is really going to pave the way for what we see in the pericope today. So chapter seven begins with Jesus healing the servant of the Roman centurion. And you have the whole bit about Jesus commending the man for the trust he has in Christ because he's a man of authority and he recognizes the legitimate and uh, powerful authority that Jesus has to heal his son. And this is the faith of a Gentile, which Jesus notes is unlike he has seen in Israel. So it's kind of a shot across the bow to some of the Israelites, the Jews that are there who have not put their faith in him. And, um, and that even goes back to chapter four, where Jesus reads the scroll from Isaiah and talks about um, the hearing being fulfilled or the the prophecy being fulfilled in their hearing. And then he highlights a Gentile leper and a Gentile widow who had greater faith than the people standing right in front of the son of God, seeing these amazing things he's doing. So this healing of the Roman centurion, uh, his servant is really following up really well with the, the, subject matter in chapter four where jesus is challenging the people who reject him even in spite of these fantastic signs and then you get to verse 11 verses 11 through 17 and we see jesus raising um let's see jesus raising a man from the dead it's it's a pretty incredible or widow's son from the dead pretty incredible event And so then if you look back all the way to the beginning of about the middle of chapter four, you can see a lot of miracles staggered one after the other as Jesus slowly unfolds uh, sort of in the manner of, you know, the epiphany season we're going through now. You see more and more that demonstrates Jesus divine nature, his sonship um, of God and who he is as the promised Messiah. You see him driving out a demon. He heals uh, Simon's mother-in-law. He cleanses a leper, heals a paralytic, heals a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. So it further demonstrates his authority doing it on the Sabbath. And then, of course, the centurion servant and raising the widow's son from the dead. And this is really 
Um, this is really just time after time, Jesus giving his fears. I mean, at least from our eyes, very little doubt that he is who he is claiming to be, the, the true son of God, the promised Messiah. And then even after this pericope in verses uh, chapter 7, verses 36 through 50, what does Jesus do to really rile up uh, the authorities? Uh, he sits and eats with a Pharisee, and at the meal, this woman comes in, anoints his feet, um, and that Luke describes her as sinful. You know, he uses that word to describe the woman, and it's it's notable because what does Jesus do? He's criticized for being, you know, a prophet and doing this, but then he rebukes the Pharisee, and he says, you know what? I've got the authority to forgive sin, so I'm going to do it. Um, so really, again, it comes down to these authoritative teachings that we see from Christ and then these actions that really lay a foundation for, am I who I say I am? Can you really trust me? And we're going to see that coming up in this portion of John, or sorry, Luke 7, where people have doubts about who Jesus is. And what does he do? He goes back to look at what I've done. Um, and that's, you know, some people... Um, some people uh, by by faith follow him and some people reject him and we'll see a lot of that in this text. Yeah, so the main player in this text is going to be John the Baptist. It's been a while since we've heard from John. He was very prominent all the way up through chapter 3 of the gospel. He's kind of faded into the background, but we find him here in the same place where we left him back in chapter 3. He is in prison. So that's where the the text picks up. We're in Luke 7 beginning at verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, They declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. That's our text for today. That's Luke 7, verses 18 to 35. 
Pastor Heckman, the again, the main player here is John. He is in prison, and he sends two of his disciples to Jesus with the question, are you the guy, Jesus, or is there somebody else coming? What what do we make of this? Is is John doubting? Is something else going on? What do you think? Well, that's a great question, Pastor Tim, and that's one of the big conundrums of this text is John really have doubts. So what's what is it that causes people to really second guess? You know, is this a legitimate question from John? Well, if you go back the to the Gospel of John, chapter one, that's the passage a lot of us know quite well. John one twenty nine through thirty four, where John has that bold confession of faith. You know, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And not in not only does he call Jesus the Lamb of God, but he also calls him the Son of God, which is a pretty clear statement that he believes he is the promised Messiah. So a lot of theologians and and lay people come at this text and they see, well, John's asking a question, but go back a little bit further back in time. And, you know, could he really be that confused after such a, you know, strong declaration of faith when Jesus is out in the wilderness and he, he baptizes Jesus. So what's changed between then and this text? And I think what we really need to focus on is John's imprisonment, where he has been thrown in prison for criticizing Herod, um, for taking his, uh, bro- I believe it's his brother's wife. Is that right? I think it's right. So he's he's thrown in, thrown in prison and he's rotting in prison. And here he is uh, under the weight of suffering. And one word I thought probably sums up this text better than anything else is expectations. And specifically, it's sort of the contrast between human expectations and God's realities, you might say. So the expectation for John, perhaps in some sense, we see behind this question was, I'm confessing the Son of God as the Messiah. Shouldn't things be going a little bit differently for me? I have put my faith in this man, and it seems as though uh, I may have gotten it wrong. So he sends these guys. And really, I, I think it really is a real question. I think he is under a great deal of duress. And that's, uh, I mean, many of our hearers perhaps have had this experience where our faith is tested under situations of difficulty. So, um I believe it is a legitimate question. It's really what we call the plain sense of the text. You don't really need to read anything into it or try to, you know, we call it doing exegetical gymnastics to get around what the text means. I think this is just John suffering, enduring hardships and really struggling with, uh, is this supposed to be happening following the son of God? So, so I think a, a couple of important things to take away from this or a couple of important questions that really came to mind when I read it were first, where's, where's the place of doubt in the life of a Christian? And secondly, what should a Christian do when their expectations are shattered, their hopes and, and dreams for the future don't turn out the way they thought they would and, and they are suffering duress and have some doubts for well, as far as doubt goes i i wouldn't encourage doubt in terms of you know oh doubt's a, a great thing in itself because the while the results of doubt can be positive um i i don't think it's good for people to kind of 
you know, say, oh, it's a great place to be. It really isn't. It's an uncomfortable place to be. Satan afflicts us with doubt and Christ's promises. So it's not something where you try to do it, but it just comes upon you from time to time. That's part of what it means to live in a sinful world as we have doubts about God's promises. But we do see, I think, in, in, in light of this, we do see good news where Jesus allows room for doubt in the hearts of his people. And in the midst of that doubt, he still holds on to us because uh, what, you know, what is faith? It's a work of God. Uh, It's not our work. And so when we have those doubts, the Lord still keeps that faith there. We see uh, the father in Mark nine says, Lord, I believe help my unbelief. Uh, Thomas has those doubts about Jesus. Mind you, not unbelief, but doubt. And, uh, I think we can use doubt as an opportunity to return to the foundation of faith and our baptism and the word of God and saying, my expectations have have contrasted greatly with what has actually happened, but I know that God is faithful um, and things don't always you know, go the way I want them to, but that doesn't mean God is not faithful and just and loving and true. Um, so God holds on to us even in our doubts. I think that's a, a blessed assurance that we have but second second i think it's you know how do we respond to life's difficulties um when things go differently and i think this is something that especially maybe our 21st century christianity here in america at least with many different you might say flavors of preaching and teaching of christianity can throw christians a little bit we talk about preaching that says life is supposed to be blessed so to speak if you follow jesus which life certainly is full of blessings when you're a christian but that's not necessarily the you know the defining characteristic of a christian or even you know we even get the teaching that if you are suffering if things are not going the way you hope they do then you don't have a strong enough faith you're not praying hard enough um, or you might even be taught that if God loved you, he'd take away your suffering um, uh, or not even give it to you in the first place. All of these are far from the truth. The truth is um, suffering is a part of the Christian life where Jesus makes that quite plain in passages like Mark thirteen thirteen or John sixteen twenty. 20. Um, so we don't seek suffering by any means as God's people. I would say the proper approach to it is to... Uh, be faithful and really in a way expect suffering because Christ basically assures us that when you are faithful to him, when you are confessing the things he calls you to confess, doing things that he calls you to do, that will require you to give up certain comforts, uh, give up certain positions that you could have otherwise, positions of prominence, positions of authority per se. Um, it'll cause you to have you know, in some ways, a difficult life, just as John did. He remained faithful to the teachings of the scriptures. He remained faithful to his confession of Jesus as the son of God, even in that doubt. And what happened, he got, you know, clapped in prison. (laughs) Now, we aren't undergoing any of that here uh, in our country necessarily, or if it is, it's not nearly to the extent it is other places. But there are other ways that being faithful to Christ causes suffering. It can be at the expense of certain friendships or people who disagree with you. Uh, it can get you fired at your job. Potentially it can, 
you know, cause you to uh, spend less money on yourself and then more money on things that are in line with Christ's call. It can, you know, even, even with, with sports, it could require you to give up a spot on a team or playing time on a team because you refuse to go to a tournament on a weekend or practice or something of that nature. So we don't seek out suffering, of course, but what we seek to be is faithful, trusting that the Lord God is gracious that uh, he is in control, that he is going to give us our daily bread, whatever that looks like. And when those expectations are shattered, um, it's not the end of the world. It's, it's simply sometimes what happens, and it does not mean that God is not good or gracious. It simply means we still live in a broken world, and these are simply some of the results of being faithful to Christ. But um we can rest in the fact that God keeps his promises and uh, will not forsake us even when he forsakes some of the things of this world. I, I'm really, I'm, I think I'm generally with you when it comes to this question being John's legitimate question. I, I don't think there's any reason from the text to think that John isn't asking the question for himself. I have heard some say that he's asking it for the sake of these two disciples. And, and on the one hand, I, I suppose they really probably need to hear the answer too. Because by this point in the gospel, I, I think they ought to be disciples of Jesus more than disciples of John. But I, I think there's there's nothing wrong with saying this question comes from John himself. And one of the places that I've often thought about in connection with this is John is, is called Elijah. And if you think about Elijah's mm-hmm. own ministry, he has a, a very a, a moment of pretty big doubt there in, I think it's 1 Kings 19, where he, he runs off into the wilderness. And in Mount Sinai, he basically says, Lord, it would be better if I'm dead. I'm the only one left. I mean, so you have this example throughout the scriptures of the faithful saints of God who experience their doubts. And and what John does with that doubt is is perfectly right. And I appreciate what you said, you know, about doubt, because I, I think it is. I, we've been studying the book of Psalms here at Grace in our adult Bible class, and I think it was with Psalm 13. I was reading a commentary that, that made the point that, you know, it, it's pretty risky to think that God has forgotten us, to think that he's not fulfilling his promises. That's a risky thing. And I think that was part of your, you know, it's, it's, it can be dangerous. But the, the commentary that I read made the point that it's even more dangerous to think that in that time of doubt, you can't turn to God in prayer. And, and so okay. John does precisely what I think the Psalms encourage us to do, and so many other places in the scriptures, that when we have these doubts, when we wonder, you know, God, why aren't you fulfilling the promise in the way that, like, I can't see it, we should ask him. <laughs> and I, I think that's that's the beautiful <laughs> example of John here that falls in line with so many Old Testament saints as well. So, okay, so John's got this question, needs an answer, and Jesus gives it. And, and what I love about Jesus' answer, as Luke records it, is it's both in deed and in word. You mentioned how Luke has been stacking up one miracle after another here. And, and even in verse 21 of our text, we see Jesus actually doing some of these miracles in front of these two messengers. And then he actually he speaks. He gives an answer in word. So tell us, how, how does Jesus answer John's question? Well, if you... I think we mentioned this in the context a little bit. If you go back to Luke chapter 4, verse 18, where Jesus unrolls that scroll in the temple and he reads it, he's, uh, excuse me, he is referencing Isaiah 61, where he's talking about the proclaiming good news to the poor, proclaiming liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind. So what does he do? to assure John that he is who he says he is. He says, look at this 
prophecy and look what I'm doing right now to fulfill it. He basically points to not just his miracles, but the authority that he has to do these things and say what he's saying. Um, and basically, I think he's saying you have your faith in the right person, John. Uh, you have your doubts and and here here's what you can look to to calm those doubts. Um, I'm I am. Deaf people are hearing again. It's incredible. Blind people are seeing. Lame people are walking. I'm raising people from the dead. I mean, where where have we ever seen stuff like this before? You haven't. And it's not a trick. It's not a hoax. I'm actually legitimately who I say I am. And I think one of the keys here to remember is, again, going back to that word of expectation, Jesus is doing what God expected him to do when he talks about fulfilling the will of the father and not the will of man uh he is he has come to fulfill god's will meeting god's expectations and that contrast it's really kind of quite marked here where the people who reject jesus and we'll get to that a little bit later in the text with the pharisees but uh their expectations are so vastly different than what god's are because here is jesus doing all these miracles and teaching all these things and going as far as saying your sins are forgiven and they're still not convinced that he is who he says he is and that these are the only things that jesus is going to give them because that's really all he needs to do and if the people knew the scriptures the prophecies which jesus is laying right before them uh, what knowledge they had of the Old Testament scriptures, I'm not sure. But he's saying, look at all that's happening here. It's It really lines up well with what everyone has said to expect from me. And they still don't. Um, so I kind of thought, I kind of wondered, you know, when the messengers, uh, it's all it says is they went back. Uh, it doesn't tell well, they, they they heard Jesus and they were sent back and they got back to John. They told him and John said, okay, uh, you know, everything's better. Uh, it, it doesn't say. I don't know if Jesus calmed his fears. And I kind of wondered why Jesus didn't, you know, just disappear and reappear. Uh, you know how he did when he walked through the crowds that were trying to throw him down the cliff. It just said he walked through their midst. I thought, why didn't Jesus use some, you know, some of his power to go free, John? And, you know, wouldn't that have been the definitive action to say, all right, you really have doubts. Here you go. Um, and and that might be what we would expect. You know, he's got the authority to do that. Why wouldn't he do that? And we come back to God doesn't work our ways. Uh, God does what he knows is best, what is perfect. We expect God to do one thing and go and assume it must be the best thing because it makes sense to us. But then God goes and does another thing because it is his will and his will is best. We actually just, um, I preached on, the Lord's Prayer, the petition, thy will be done. And we talked about how that's a, a difficult prayer because praying the will of God, uh, you know, that got Jesus killed. Um, and it takes us to very difficult places. So why do we pray it? Why do we seek the will of God? Because very simply, we trust that God's will is best. And so I think that's what John was really left with is, you know, Jesus didn't come and free me from prison. I'm still in here. But I have to trust that if this guy is who he says he is, then his will be done. Um, and it's not quite what I expect, but I, I need to rest in that promise. And I think of especially a text like Isaiah 55. This is this is a verse or a couple of verses one of my parishioners loves to bring up a lot in Bible study because <laughs> it's a really reassuring one in a, in a way. 
where Isaiah says, uh, of God, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So um, really a, a couple big things to remember. First, God does things his way, and that's perfect. It often contrasts with the way we would do things. And the danger is assuming that because it doesn't make sense to us or because it's attached to suffering, it must be wrong. Uh, we have this idea in our culture that anything associated with pain uh, is bad. And uh, I can't remember what philosophy is associated with that. I don't know if you um, trying to sound smart. I know there is a there is a philosophy <laughs> that connects basically uh, all pain is bad. So if there's something that leads to pain, you must be doing it wrong. And, and, and pleasure is the, the highest goal in life. So do everything that makes you happy and um, don't do anything that makes you suffer. But maybe I'll think of it in five minutes. But uh, suffering should not make us think that we're, we're necessarily doing something wrong or God has forgotten us. That's what Satan would love. But suffering really... It's something that almost assures us that we're, you know, we're remaining faithful because Jesus says there will be suffering. And if you remain faithful to me, you'll suffer in this life, but you'll have the crown of eternal life. You you have that by remaining faithful to me. Um, and if we ever doubt in God's goodness, uh, we don't look to logic or reason or, you know, pain or pleasure or whatnot. We, we look to the sure and certain words of action, words and actions of Jesus just as he gave John to look at and assure us really of the second thing I want to point out, your faith is in the right person. Uh, as Psalms say, don't put your trust in princes. I think the reading from Jeremiah next week condemns people for putting their trust in man or even their own flesh. Uh, but if, if your faith is in the son of God, it's in the, the right place. Um, and that, that verse in 23, just to finish here, uh, when Jesus says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me, uh, he's essentially, I think the Greek word is scandalizo, the Greek verb. So the, the kind of the derivative scandal, uh, it's meant, you know, something that causes someone to stumble or to have difficulty understanding something. So blessed is the one who um, does not fall away from me in the midst of suffering and, and doubts. Um so I, I, I think uh, Jeff, Professor Jeff Gibbs said it this way. There are odd things about Jesus' ministry and odd things will happen to those who are part of it. But that doesn't mean that, again, your faith is in the wrong person. It just means being being in, in the reign of God will not always make you happy. There will certainly be times of happiness, but it, it also means trusting in the Lord when the way is not clear but the promises um, and that promises I am with you always. And uh, I work all things for the good of those who love me. Yeah, so, maybe maybe I think not. John is John. Yeah. I think well, John is learning this the hard way. Sure. Well, maybe, and maybe not happy, but certainly blessed. And you, you have that beatitude mm -hmm. from Jesus. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And as, as you pointed out, Luke does not tell us and, and none of the evangelists do kind of the end of the the story, how does John respond to this message getting back to him? Now, I suppose Matthew and Mark both record the beheading of John. He dies as a martyr, mm -hmm. and so I think it's fair to assume he hears and he believes. At the same mm -hmm. time, the fact that it doesn't record that explicitly for us, I think is an opportunity for us as the readers of the Gospels to respond 
and believe the promise ourselves. So not just blessed are you, John, when you are not offended by me, but blessed are you, reader of the scriptures, when you are not offended by Jesus, but put your faith in him for salvation. We're going to keep talking about this text on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking Luke chapter 7 with Pastor Joel Heckman today. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, February 7th. We're studying Luke chapter 7, verses 18 to 35 with Pastor Joel Heckman. He serves at St. John's Lutheran Church in Okarchi, Oklahoma. Pastor Heckman, prior to the break, we left off where John's messengers leave. They take the word of Jesus back to John, and then Jesus begins to speak to the crowds, and he talks about John. What does Jesus have to say about John in verses 24 and following? Well, he kind of diverts the dialogue here, talking, going straight from, here's my response to John to, okay, let's talk about this guy a little bit. And he's making a, a couple different points here, one about John, but then the rest, as we see at the end of verse 28, about people who belong in the reign of, or find themselves in the reign of God. And he's talking quite a bit about greatness and status in terms of John, uh, when he's asking the people, what did you expect? He's slowly sort of building John up as he says, did you expect to see this and this and this? So here's how I would rephrase, excuse me, so, what Jesus is saying. So first, when he says, did you expect to see a reed shaken by the wind? Essentially saying, did you expect to see someone who is a pushover or someone who would vacillate based on, you know, the status quo, someone who would cave under pressure, basically. And the answer, it's kind of a rhetorical question. The answer is no, but um, he he's making it pretty clear by asking the question, this isn't the case. And then he said, do, do you expect someone in soft clothing? Uh, and, and that's kind of going again with the pushover, someone who appreciates luxury and doesn't want to go into any difficult situations. Or you might say, did you expect to see someone who exemplifies the rich and comfortable because he was connected with me? Maybe you might say it that way. And then he asked, did you expect a prophet? And this is really interesting because prophets generally – uh, even if it wasn't the case with the people to whom they prophesied, they generally held a high status because they are selected by the Lord to go and preach his word uh, in a very particular context. So he says, no, he's more than a prophet. Uh, he's the guy who went to pave the way for me. He is the guy whose task is paramount in paving the way for my ministry, my public ministry, to eventually go and die on the cross and rise from the dead. So he's essential in this whole process. So he's a prophet, but he's a, he's just a little bit more important than that because of his particular role. And uh, he's not some guy who is going to be necessarily drawing attention to himself. I mean, he's 
wearing an outfit of is it uh camel skin i believe and eating locusts and honey uh he's not you know he's not in some big arena with nice plush clothes drawing attention he's just a guy who knows his place uh, we see john saying i must decrease he must increase in john chapter 3 verse 30 so john clearly understands his role as secondary to christ and jesus is really saying this guy's a lot more important than you might realize because he's paving the way for me. But then he goes, you know, he says, and, and this is a question I've gotten, you know, who is the greatest person in the scriptures besides Jesus? I'm like, well, Luke chapter seven, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. It's like, okay, well, can't live up to that. But then Jesus follows that with, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And that is really emphasizing the fact that John, while he is amazingly important in the history of salvation, Jesus is saying, what is happening to me is so great and even greater than what John is himself is doing. If you believe in me, you are greater than John. So Jesus is saying, John is important, but even the most lowly person on the earth, the, the person with the lowest status in the eyes of the world is greater than this great man, John, if he has faith in the Messiah, in, in me. Uh, you might not be a prophet. You might not be someone who has the kind of platform that John did, or maybe someone in our current culture. Um, but if you are a child of God, you are highly regarded in the eyes of God. And this is where um, we go to our confession, our Lutheran confessions to remember, uh, okay, well, if I'm greater than John, don't get too pompous <laughs> don't are self-important just find comfort in that it's it, because what is it, what does this the confession say uh this is the not of your own doing it is the god it is the gift of god because we cannot by our own reason or strength believe in christ or come to him but the holy spirit has called us by the gospels the explanation of that third article so we remember uh i am greater than john uh in terms of my righteousness given to me um John is great because of what he was doing. I'm greater than him because righteousness is the measure of who I am. But then uh, that righteousness is given, not something I earned, not something I worked for which I worked. It's something that's a complete gift that the Lord God not only gives, but maintains. And it's a comfort for people uh, who are lowly in the world's eyes, who might see other Christians and say they are greater than me. And maybe that, you know, maybe they do things that look greater in the eyes of the world. But this is a comfort for those who are feeling, who feel lowly in the eyes of the world, even the eyes of the church to say um, the righteousness of Jesus is what defines you. That's your identity. When you go to say, who am I? I'm a child of God, just like John was, uh, just like every Christian before you, so that uh, you're, you have the same status before God as Martin Luther, John the Baptist, Moses, uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, all these giants of the faith, we might say. That's a, that's a comforting thing and a, a humbling thing, too, but a comforting thing where we have the same spirit of God that created faith in those men and, and, and women to come before us. And um, as great as John was, uh, he is the same sort of child of God as we are. And that's a comfort, I believe. <laughs> Yeah, I think that certainly is a very great comfort. And I think it, it ties in with the very end of Jesus' answer to John that gets sent back to him, particularly where he ends that long list 
with the the words, the poor have good news preached to them, which has always struck me in that. And I, I know I'm walking back a little bit, but I think it ties into what you're saying. You know, that mm-hmm. of, of all the things that Jesus has done, I mean, it, it, he seems like he's building for a while. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers cleanse, deaf hear, the dead are raised up. I mean, that what could be bigger than that? And then Jesus concludes the list by saying, the poor have good news preached to them. Well, what what's the, mm-hmm. why is that so important that Jesus ends his list like that? And I think it's, it's precisely what you're saying here, that in the kingdom of heaven, the poor who have the good news preached to them and believe it, they all receive the gift of eternal life, whether you are greatest among women like John or least among women like, like me. I mean, you know, Paul says, I'm the chief of sinners, and yet all the sinners who hear this good news and believe it, they receive this gift. And, and that's mm-hmm. the gift, you know, I mean, that, that lasts forever of, of all of these gifts. The, the ones who are blind and receive their sight, you know, later died and are awaiting the resurrection. And same with all those who receive the miracles of Jesus. John, we talked about, he gets beheaded. He's awaiting the resurrection. Well, who gets the resurrection? It's the ones who have good news preached to them and believe it. And I really think that, mm-hmm. that that ties into what Jesus says here about John. And as, as you said, then provides that great comfort for me. You know, I mean, maybe I haven't experienced all these miracles. Maybe my life doesn't seem to have as much significance as John's did. And yet, because I've heard the good news preached to me, and by the gift of the Holy Spirit, I believe it, I, I have a place in the kingdom of God, and, and that's all I need. Mm-hmm. And that's a great point. As, as you go through that verse 22 and 23 again, you you may ask yourself, you know, if I'm blind and still blind, why haven't I received my sight? If I have an injury, you know, the lame walked in Jesus' day, why am I not getting that? Uh, if I am if I don't have my hearing, why don't I have that? If there are bad things happening to me, why haven't I gotten that? And I think what you said is really important because if, if the good news is more important than any of that, you have what is most important. Um, and it doesn't mean your faith is lacking. It doesn't mean God hates you. Uh, I don't know what it means necessarily that you still have this affliction. You know, I don't know what it would have said to John the Baptist, you know, while you're still in prison and why you're going to go get executed for this, but you have the good news preached to you and you have something that is more valuable than anything else. So perhaps you will receive your sight or, or your hearing or whatever affliction, you know, maybe God will alleviate that. He can, there's no guarantee, but whatever you do or don't have, you have the good news preached to you. Um, and that uh, there's nothing more valuable than that in life. Right. Well, and, and then having the good news preached to you and believing it in this life means that you have hope for the resurrection, which is where all mm-hmm. of these maladies are reversed. I mean, yeah, John exactly. was John was imprisoned and beheaded, and, and yet he'll be raised with Jesus on the last day. And, and mm-hmm. I mean, so for all those, for anyone who, who has these maladies, whatever they may be, and, and then they die, like we will, unless the Lord returns first, because the good news has been preached to us, that vindication, that resurrection is coming on the last day. And and again, mm-hmm. as you pointed out at the very beginning, to this is all Jesus telling John and everyone who's overhearing, you are trusting in the right guy. And and here's mm-hmm. the evidence. And it's finally found in that good news being preached to the poor. That I mean, and that's where with faith in that, that's where Jesus brings the resurrection on the last day. So yeah, I mean lots of lots of great stuff in this text. Mm-hmm. Now Jesus has finished speaking about John, and then he's going to transition to speaking about the people who've heard John and himself. But before we get there, Luke provides this slight 
uh, editorial comment, perhaps you might say. And he, he he tells us a little bit about the reaction of the people who are listening. And on the one hand, the tax collectors, and I think, quote, sinners, would reply one way with faith. The Pharisees, lawyers, they don't believe. What What's going on there in verses 29 and 30, that parenthetical comment made by St. Luke? Well, I think this is Luke pointing out and emphasizing the importance of how we respond to the preaching of God's word, certainly here it was the response to Jesus' words, and even what John the Baptist did, which was in accordance with Christ. And the response of faith is very different from these two groups of people that Luke is highlighting here. And um, here's a here's a comment from a, a commentary, a reference in my preparation here. Uh, I believe his name is Daryl Bach, who wrote a commentary on the first nine chapters of Luke, he says, um, the people declaring God is just speaks of people responding favorably to God's overture of forgiveness because they recognized that God's call for repentance was correct. John baptized those who acknowledged God's justice and vindicated his way. So essentially what he's kind of saying is Luke here is highlighting people who responded in faith to Christ, not just John's baptism, but these words that he is using to emphasize what John was doing. John, John, as it says, was a baptism of repentance. Uh, and so it's um, to undergo that baptism is to say, I, I am a sinner. I need to repent and I need the forgiveness of Christ. And so they responded, you know, saying God is just you know, if he condemns my sin, he's just. The Pharisees, on the other hand, uh, and this goes, once again, we return to chapter four, um, where the people hear the preaching of Jesus, where he's saying there are Gentile lepers and widows who are more faithful than you are, who have more faith in the Son of God, who's standing right before you. They had more faith in God than you have standing before the Son of God here. And so I believe that's what the Pharisees get all riled up about here. They're saying, well, we reject this guy. Uh, even tax collectors are responding faithfully. These guys that are generally considered scum, but they're repenting of, you know, their, their unfaithful dealings with money. And then here the Pharisees, you would think, would know the scriptures really well and, and know what to expect. Uh, they reject Jesus. And of course, eventually that gets Jesus killed, but it also leads to his resurrection. So what should our response be to this kind of editorial parenthetical statement? I think a couple of things. It's to thank God that by faith we trust in Christ and we are not among the Pharisees and, you know, are condemned for that. Um, we have faith by the gift of God. And again, our faith is in the right man, but it's also important to remember how we respond to preaching and teaching of God's word matters. Uh, we have pastors and teachers all over the world who have been called to proclaim the word of God and, and not just proclaim it, but proclaim it faithfully. And really uh, when you think about our theology of the office of the Holy ministry is Men have been appointed um, as people who are essentially standing in the place of Christ. We are as under shepherds on earth called to, uh, in, in a way, in essence, say what Christ would say were he standing there in so many words. Not, you know, necessarily exactly, but we're saying we're speaking the word of God. We're making a proclamation of 
law and gospel, the death and resurrection of Christ for our forgiveness of sins. And to reject that is essentially to reject Christ because he's placed the man in the office uh, called by the congregation to be that under shepherd and proclaim the word of God. Uh, so it's, it's, it's quite dangerous to reject that. And I know it's a very difficult thing to hear the word of God sometimes just as these Pharisees didn't like what they were hearing. Uh, there are oftentimes that we hear the word of God and we don't like it. Uh, I don't, I don't know any people who like being told you're wrong, you know, maybe internally, but usually we just push back against that because it, you know, makes you feel bad. It reflects poorly on you. You know, heaven forbid we have a, an image that has any, <laughs> any scuffs or scars on it that people see. And, and we just don't like being told that we're wrong, but uh, it's critical that we hear that word in humility, uh, pastors included, and say, uh, woe is me, as Isaiah says in our text for this Sunday, I am a sinful man of unclean lips, and uh, I know I'm not worthy to be in God's presence. But then the fruits of this repentance is comfort and a stronger faith, um, you know, a stronger trust that God God is gracious and just and loving and uh and even though I am a sinner, you know, chief of sinners, though I be, Jesus shed his blood for me. So I, I think that's just a couple little things to take away from here. Uh, uh, God is highlighting the fact that uh, he is just with this response, faithful response of the people. And we thank God for our faith. And we also thank God for his law and gospel, uh, the law, which is often difficult to hear, but a good thing. Why is it bad? And the gospel, which you, you can never separate those two. They're always, they're always with each other. If you have one without the other, it's, it, it really ruins what God is doing through them. Um, but if you have that law and gospel preaching together, acknowledging our sin and then acknowledging and finding comfort in God's forgiveness, that's just critical to the life of a Christian. That's really highlighted here in this response. I appreciate you connecting those two verses with the office of the Holy Ministry as it exists today, because I do think what what's happening here in Luke 7, within the, the context of what Jesus is saying and how St. Luke interrupts here, is that he is, Jesus is saying to the crowds, look, if you believed John, you'll believe me. If you, if you get John right, you're going to get Jesus right. And if you get John wrong, you're going to get Jesus wrong. So, you know, John is the forerunner. You need to you need to believe what he preaches in order to be ready to hear what Jesus preaches. And then what you're doing is, and I think this is the perfect move because of, of when Jesus sends out his 72 later in the gospel, you know, in the same way, Jesus is going to send people with his word and he'll say, the one who hears you hears me. And so, I mean, it's the same thing. What John preached is what Jesus preached is what the church still preaches today those who he places into his office of the Holy Ministry. So, yeah, I mean, you need to listen to Jesus, and you need to listen to him by listening to the messengers that he sends. John, who came before, those who, whom he places in the office after. Now, not everybody does. And, and I think that's where Jesus' words pick back up in verses 31 through the end of our text. He talks particularly mm-hmm. about the way people have responded, both to John and to him, in that current generation. What, what does Jesus have to say about the way people have responded? Well, he makes an interesting comparison where he talks about, I mean, we see his parables, we see a lot of other comparisons we make, but here he compares the people to children. And what are some of the first things we think about when we think of children? You know, maybe sometimes, you know, maybe they're adorable and they can't talk back at us (laughs) or throw their food in our face or whatever. Um, 
But a lot of people consider children to be, you know, childish, right? Immature. Uh, and when children don't get their way, they often don't respond very well. They throw a tantrum, they yell, they throw things. Uh, when things don't go precisely as they want to, children often get angry and complain until they uh, get their way. And I'm sure more than a few parents listening can relate to that. Um, <laughs> I have a, a 18 month old out there who has been a little bit loud during this recording because <laughs> he probably did not get his way. Uh, but I think that's what Jesus is saying here when he's comparing the children. And especially, I, on, to, to be honest, before I studied this text, I, I would kind of just gloss over this comparison with the, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. And I was like, what, what is, what is it? What exactly is Jesus saying? And I think what he's saying is um, these children are doing things and they're expecting people to respond in a certain way. And when they don't, they're quite disappointed. Uh, so we played a song and you were supposed to dance, but you didn't. So we're upset. Uh, we sang a dirge and you were supposed to weep, but you didn't, uh, you know, and they assume, you know, we played the flute. You were supposed to dance. Well, maybe they weren't. We sang a dirge and didn't weep. Well, maybe you weren't supposed to sing a dirge. And essentially, I think Jesus is saying, um, I'm not what you expected. You're kind of throwing a tantrum by rejecting me in a way as a child would. And you're rejecting the son of God who, again, going back to all these miracles, I'd like to think I would have responded differently. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe not. You know, it's, it's very easy to look back in hindsight and say, how could these people not see it? But they didn't. Uh, but go back. He healed a leper, drove out demons, raised the dead. It's, it's as though Jesus is saying, I, what more do I need to do <laughs> to convince you? And, and the conclusion that Jesus says is uh, especially at the end here, wisdom is justified by all her children. He's saying he's going to be vindicated. Um, you know, what I am doing here, the things I am teaching, the things I'm doing are going to be vindicated when I am nailed to a cross, laid in a tomb, and then I walk out three days later, which he did predict throughout his ministry multiple times to his, his followers. And uh, when he says, you know, John the Baptist comes eating no bread, drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon, he's not fulfilling your expectations, not saying what you want him to say. So you say he has a demon. It's just your name calling now. And then the son of man comes and eats and drinks um, with tax collectors. You think you shouldn't be doing that. Uh, we want you to do something else, but you're not doing it. Again, going back to we played a flute, but you didn't dance kind of thing. You're saying you're not exactly who we want you to be. So uh, we, we don't we don't like you. We don't believe in you. And it's, I think that the, the extension to us today is obviously if, you, if you're listening to this and you're a baptized Christian human being, um, you don't have that same issue where you full on rejected Jesus. Obviously you have the gift of faith, but I think it's, it's not that we don't have the signs to demonstrate that Jesus is who he is. I think it's our weight to um, see Jesus' promises fulfilled, uh, see him provide our daily bread, and even just the wait for the resurrection, where we, we talk about, in, in, especially in Lutheran theology, the sort of now, not yet tension. Uh, tension is something that you just want to be resolved, but it isn't quite resolved yet. You just have to wait. Uh, so now Jesus has risen from the dead. Now, as scripture says, is the day of salvation. Right now, we are baptized and saved 
from our sin, but not yet is the new create the new creation is not yet the resurrection of the dead and life of the world to come is not yet uh even our suffering for the sake of christ which is taking place right now is is right now and it's not yet over it will be at some point maybe not until the day he calls us home it's it's again that now not yet tension in which we live that these people weren't willing weren't willing to enter into um they said we following you puts us in a position where we might suffer, where we might have to do things we don't want to do. So we're just going to get out. Um, so what is Jesus response as we wait in this in-between time and Satan tries to exploit our suffering and uh, wants us to cross over into that camp of the Pharisees and say, I reject you and my sinful expectations haven't been met. You're not exactly who I want you to be God. So I'm rejecting you. What is Jesus response? He says, Go and tell. It's the same as he gives John, basically. If if someone is suffering and they're having these doubts and this now not yet tension, what does Jesus say? Go and tell this doubting, suffering Christian what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor of good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Um, we are are blessed even in suffering, not because of our sinful expectations being met, but simply because we belong to Christ and he is holding on to us. And and we see that in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the reign of God. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. And he goes on and on. And so it's that tension of, I don't feel blessed right now. I have a very difficult circumstance in which I find myself and things aren't going exactly the way I expect them to. Jesus is not exactly the Savior that my sinful nature wants him to be, but he is my Savior. He is who he says he is. He is perfect, even though I might not see that. And he will bring me through. He will He will preserve my faith. He will give me the strength to suffer in his stead, and he will provide whatever I need um, to live faithfully in my vocations until that resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come so really our prayer and i think in reading this text is lord grant me uh the faith of john the baptist who suffered even unto death Uh, grant me the faith of these tax collectors who (laughs) were rejected by many but still repented of their sins and found forgiveness and strength in christ um So it's, Lord, grant me strong faith and help me to find that same comfort in your word, your sacraments, your salvation, which is mine by faith. And I think that's what Jesus is saying. I'm going to be vindicated at the end here. And he was vindicated. And and, and just to say it again, we have our faith in the right man, no matter what suffering accompanies that faithfulness. Pastor Joel Heckman is pastor at St. John's Lutheran Church in Okarchi, Oklahoma, helping us today with Luke chapter 7, verses 18 to 35. Pastor Heckman, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you so much, Pastor Tim. I'm your host here on Sharp Iron, Pastor Tim the Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Luke chapter 7 or any of the gospel according to St. Luke, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.